Amen. Please be seated. Thank you, Daniel. Wonderful reading. And Chuck for the communion. Um, Thomas, good singing. Yeah, I've been the interim for quite a while. But I just want to remind us all um, that this is such a blessing for me, and it's a blessing for you, and I trust and pray it'll be a blessing for Patterson and Sherry. Um, and I do plan to move from this table to the, to the pew, from the pulpit to the pew. Still plan to teach on Sunday morning, God willing. I, I really believe that the time will come when the masks will come off and some sort of normalcy will kick back in. It will happen in 2021. I'm not a prophet or a son of a prophet, but I surely it's got to happen, right? I hope you're praying for that. I am. So good morning, church. Buenos dias, mis hermanos y hermanas, y las bendiciones de Dios. Siempre es bueno verte. Porque somos familia. De cualquier familia, somos la familia de Dios. Oro por ustedes todos los días. I pray for you every day. The congregation, every day. Sometimes by name, and I know that you lift me by name. I feel it. I know it's there. I know that you bring up to God our shepherds and those who serve and those you know, for the entire congregation, and it's such a powerful moment. I can tell you, church, that without prayer, we, we are lifeless. I mean, absolutely lifeless. Um, I teach a course, this is an aside, I teach a course uh, in the spiritual disciplines for, for a seminary online, and uh, generally, when you do that, nearly every that I've read in spiritual formation will say the number one spiritual discipline is Bible intake. And I believe that's really critical. And then they would say, and then prayer. I don't know how you separate the two personally. And for me, prayer was always number one. The Word of God, we absolutely need it to feed us every day. But without prayer, we suffocate. Our lifeline is, it's like a it's like a diver under the water, you know, not with a tank, but with the old-fashioned hose that goes down, and you kink the hose, and you just suffocate. For those whose faith is weak, and for those whose joy is, uh, is, an, is, is wanting, uh, I would challenge you to look at the mirror first, the God's mirror, and ask yourself about your prayer life. You just need to pray. Oro por ustedes todos los días. Con ustedes, with you every day. Um, the Bible de describes God's people experiencing joy in dire circumstances. And it may seem like a contradiction to those who really don't have a relationship with God. How can you possibly feel joy, like Paul did, in a Roman dungeon? Or like King David, walking through the valley of the shadow of death? The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, while he's in prison, 
He writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say rejoice. Let all men know your forbearance. The Lord is at hand. Have no anxieties about anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving in your heart, let your requests be made known before God and the peace of God that passes all comprehension will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We know that the peace of God can only occur when God's presence is discovered. And the reason that not only Paul, but let's say, let's say um, King David, you know, you know, in that beautiful 23rd Psalm, you know, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then in verse 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Well, why, David? Why don't you fear evil? And then he says, for thou art with me, you are with me. Somehow joy is always associated with God's presence. And the reason we can feel joy in the midst of a pandemic is because circumstances don't demand us to feel otherwise. Because joy is not contingent on what's happening around us. It's only dependent on whose we are. Relationship. Now, the Apostle Paul talks about this relationship all through Philippians, all four chapters. It's about a 12-minute read. You can read it out loud in 12 minutes to yourself in probably five or six. And as you read through chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, you realize that Paul is expressing enormous joy, his own joy, the joy of the congregation, and yet he also addressed some concerns. And you think, how do those two dovetail? They come together because joy is only contingent upon one's relationship. Now, the Apostle Paul uses the, the, the metaphor... He does it more than once, uh, but specifically in, in, in Philippians 3, we talked about it last week, he'll use the metaphor of running a race. And the Philippians were very familiar with seeing runners train. You may think that's a modern phenomenon, but it goes back eight centuries before Christ, at least in the Greco-Roman world, in, in, in eighth century before Christ, in the, in the, in the Greek world. When the Olympics began, every four years they had the Olympiad. Only in modern times has that kicked back in. The last, I guess, early 20th century, I could talk to, to Kent to find out exactly when that occurred. But I think around the turn of the early 20th century, we began to reintroduce the Olympiads to, to the world. But it was common practice to see uh, trainers running. And so Paul uses this analogy. And he says, uh, he, he says, I want to attain the joy of the resurrection. And then he says in verse 12, chapter 3, not that I've already obtained this, because he's still in the race, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, complete, but one thing I do. And here comes the metaphor. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul explains the, using, this, using this analogy, Paul explains that the goal is the end of our journey of faith, the end of life. The prize is heaven 
Philippians 3.20, our commonwealth is in heaven, our citizenship, and from there we await the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our goal is the end of life. Our prize is heaven. Our upward call for the prize uh, is the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4.17. And then Paul explains, this is how you finish the race. You finish the race by not looking back and looking forward. That's how you finish the race of life. But, of course, it begs the question, how do we run the race? And Paul explains that in chapter 2. How do we run the race? Well, the first four verses that Daniel read of Philippians 2, here they are right here. So, we're going to read it right now. Um, I would have you read it with me, but, well, why not? Let's all read it together. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any incentive of love, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility, Count others better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You want to know how to run the race? You finish it by forgetting what lies behind and straining forward. But you run it with love and humility. I don't know about you, Paul would agree with me, or I guess I could say I would agree with Paul. What does that look like? What, okay, okay so, so I know how to finish. Number one, I don't quit, I don't drop out of the race. Number two, the only way I can finish is, is not to go backwards. I have to, I have to forget that, my the good and the bad, and I have to straight forward. Okay, I've, I've got it. I've got that down. And I run it, Paul said, by practicing love and showing humility. Very similar, I think, to this scene right here. Because God doesn't ask that we come first in the race. We just need to finish it. And in the process, we practice love and humility. But in all honesty, uh, I'm not exactly sure what that means, and Paul felt like neither were his readers. So he explained what it meant. He said, notice this begins with verse 6, but in verse 5 he'll say, have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. Have what mind? Practice love and show humility. This is how you run the race. Have this mind among the church, as you know Jesus had it. And then Paul breaks off into something, and he shows them with this image, this is what love and humility look like. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and given him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the, to the glory of, of God the Father. That's how you run the race. You simply emulate Christ running it. Now notice the two words I underline in the first in verses 6, 7, and 8. Servant, pardon me, there we go. Servant, humble, three words, and obedient. You want to know how to become a servant? Well, you simply look to others' interests. You count others better than yourself, and you obey. That's what every servant does. Now, I can tell you that I find it very interesting, as I've studied this over the years, verses uh, 6 through 11, that there is a rhythmical quality. And for if I were to read this in the Greek text, um, even if we couldn't speak Greek, if I could read it properly, you would hear some rhythm, nearly a poetic balance to it. Because there is clearly a rhythmical quality to those six verses. And so scholars, over the years simply believe, and I think it's, I think it's um, somewhat corroborated by external evidence, that they believe that this indeed was a hymn, a worship hymn, an early worship hymn, which, by the way, kind of sheds light on how the early church worshipped. I mean, that's pretty remarkable. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself. What we have here is the pre-existence of God, of Christ with God. We have here the, the, the whole incarnation and then the glorious ascension. Uh, therefore, God has highly exalted him. It's the gospel message. How many times have we sung the gospel through our hymns, the good news of Jesus? You think we're the only ones in the, in the modern church who has ever uh, chanted and sang to the glory of God in, in, with our lyrics? Not at all. It goes all the way back to the apostolic era, to the New Testament. And I believe this very well could be one of the hymns. So why would Paul break off in song? Because the lyrics demonstrated how to show love, how to practice love, and, and, and um, show humility. I, you've never uh, met Peter Flood. Peter's a dear friend of ours. I worked with Peter. He's a Catholic priest. Um, in fact, he was my boss twice. Uh, one of the two best bosses I ever had in the military. But Peter and I had a lot in common, not just our love for the Lord and our love for Scripture, but we had um, poems in common. I don't want to make it sound whatever, I, you know, neither eccentric nor effeminate, but in fact, poetry, we loved poetry. He still does, and so do I. And he was the only, he's the only man I've ever met in my life that he and I could sit down and just for fun go back and forth with just reciting poetry that we enjoyed and stay there for 30 minutes to an hour. It's a hoot. In fact, when I first met the man, I thought, I'm going to have to read more and, and, and put more to memory because this guy is really sharp. And I mean, this is how 
This is how Peter would do it. He would just simply break into a poem. Debbie can attest to this. We would be having dinner with Peter, and all of a sudden he would just break into a poem as if it's part of the conversation. And I've done the same thing over the years for fun. For example, uh, whenever I would walk down the corridor and you, there at the office, and I would um, I, I worked for Peter overseas uh, in the in the Far East, and I go on the door to where he worked his office, and I would say, "Hey, Peter, do you have a minute?" He would nearly shout from where he was. He would say, he'd open the door, and he would say, "When when a friend calls to me from the road and slows his horse to a meaning walk." I don't look around on all the rows I have and hold and shout from where I am, what is it? No, not as there is the time to talk. I thrust my hoe in the mellow ground, blade end up, five feet tall, and I plod. I go over to the stone wall for a friendly visit. And then he would always add Robert Frost or whoever the... And the first time he did it, I thought, whoa. It took me at least a measure or two before I realized he's reciting a piece of prose or a poem. It's, it's really a hoot. You ought to try it sometime. A lot of comical poems, too, you could come, and I could share a few right now, but I don't want any more side than, we're gonna, than that. Um, but that's what Apostle Paul is doing, I think. He's telling the Philippian church in verses 1 through 4, this is how, by the way, the, the last verse in chapter 1 tells the, 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 the church, um, live according to Christ. Maintain your harmony in your, in your life. And then he talks about practicing love and showing humility. I think as he's writing or dictating this, he's realizing this is probably, like a deer in the headlights. So this is what he does. He says, I want you to practice love and humility, just like Jesus did. And then he breaks into a song. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not... They knew the hymn. They knew it. They had probably sang it every Sunday. It would be like us breaking into one of our songs. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. It all preaches. And I think that's what Paul was doing. Now, there are two stanzas, stanzas six through eight. The first one talks about Jesus' actions. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. It's all about what Jesus did for us. You want to know how to run the race? This is it. You empty yourself. You get yourself off your almighty throne. No matter who you are. And you understand the concept of helping others. You serve. You count others better than yourself. You look to others' interests just like a servant would, voluntary, voluntarily or involuntarily. Now, the second stanza is God's action. Therefore, God 
has exalted him. And I think by implication, we can't go much further with this analogy, but by implication, he's talking about us. If I serve, that's why Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 4 and 6 through 8, he says, the point of my departure is at hand. I fought the good fight. I've fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid for me a wreath, a crown of righteousness that the righteous judge will give me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who loved his appearing. The second stanza by, by connection may, is, is us. Therefore, God will highly exalt us as well. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, heaven, all the angelic forces, earth, and all the dead. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Now, Jesus Christ. Now, I wish we had more time because this really is helpful. But Paul is referencing not the kurios in Greek, but the Adonai the, in, in the Old Testament. You know, the word Yahweh, God's name, was so holy they couldn't even utter it. So they had what later became called the, the this is, I'm really chasing this, but this is called a tetragrammaton, the four letters, you know, Yahweh. And I'm convinced this is the word Lord that Paul's referencing and that the hymn referenced. That every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh, is the Lord, to the glory of Yahweh the Father, to the glory of God the Father. That's the second stanza. So the hymn itself you know, has its, I think, has its roots in this. And it needs to be understood that, that it is a natural progression. What does running the race look like? Love and humility. That's what you should do. Well, what does that look like? Look at Jesus. He emptied himself, even though he was equal to God. He emptied himself. Took the form, not of a king. Did, did the earth have kings? Of course, we, we still have kings. But God, when he was made manifest in the flesh and dwelt among men full of grace and truth, John 1.14, was incarnated as a servant. We don't have any more time, but I can tell you the two words servant in the New Testament, doulos, doulos, in seminary Greek, doulos, which is servant, which is where we get our, I mean, a slave, doulos, and then there's diakonos, you know, where we get the word deacon. Guess what word Paul uses here? Slave, slave, not a deacon, a slave. He emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Who? He did. I mean, I, let that just sink in. True joy comes from helping others. You want to know how you run the race? This is it. Brother Lawrence wrote, actually he didn't write it. Brother Lawrence, he goes by Brother Lawrence, a early 17th century Parisian monk in the Roman church, um, back in the 1600s, um, had an interesting early life, and then entered a Parisian monastery. He was the lowest of the low. They actually had classes, castes in these monasteries, all the way up to the abbot. Lawrence entered at the bottom and died at the bottom. And he, all of his sayings, 
and his letter writing were so um, profound that his fellow monks compiled them and put them into a little bitty book that has been a bestseller for 400 years called The Practice of the Presence of God. The theme behind it is, as Lawrence was, his, his chores for the monastery were to wash the, the pots and pans in the kitchen and the latrines, clean the latrines, and later in life, when he got too old to do that, he was repairing sandals. He never moved up to the, to the next level. He was always at pretty much at the bottom, at the lowest estate. But he quickly discovered that even though he would celebrate Mass every day, he really discovered God's presence when he would help others, washing pots and pans. And he said, my soul would converse with God when I wasn't even know my, knowing my soul was conversing. His whole point is this, and I think it's right from Philippians 2. His whole point was doing something for others is the epitome of worship. That's real worship, helping other people. Years ago, I, I would help with Habitat for Humanity. We also had here at the, at, the brother, at the church here, we would have Casas por Cristo, houses for Christ that we would go and, and build, um, working there, 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 were, there was an occasion when I was, uh, you know, hammering a nail or something right next to a man I knew, I knew him, and, and I was shocked he was there because he was truly a multimillionaire. I don't know how much money he was worth, but I know he could have bought that house in a whole subdivision and given it away. So we held a conversation, and I asked him, what, what are you doing here? I mean, I can buy a piece of furniture, but I can't buy the house. He said, Oh, I give, I, I, I give money, but there's no joy like hammering the nail. That's where the joy comes from. So I, I work for Habitat, I volunteer as often as I can. And then I backed up, literally backed up, and I knew a lot of these folks. And I said, oh, there's Jim. Wow. And I just began naming five or six or seven of them. Very wealthy people. And they corroborated what Paul said in Philippians 2. That real joy is based in giving. We do the same thing here at Antioch. I've never been with a congregation that gave more. Not just money. I'm talking about time at the branch and other places. You want to find out where real worship occurs? Now, this, is, this is beautiful worship. But real worship also occurs at the branch. It also occurs every time we, we give that cup of cold water. Um, forgive me if this sounds, you know, uh, I would see Debbie in the kitchen cooking all day, eight hours. What is she doing? Well, she and other ladies have gotten together and said, we're going we're gonna to give food away. And so they make meals. I know you're there too. I understand that. But I want you to know that, that it's reciprocal. We're going to talk about a quick study as we close. But giving's always reciprocal. I make little table tennis paddles. People say, well, you must really enjoy making them. Well, I do, but I, I don't want to make them and then set them aside. Why? Because it takes me 15 hours. You know, I epoxy together various layers, stiff as I can, as light as I can, cut it out on the bandsaw, take the router, mess with it, build the handles, and so 
growing. All of that takes time. Why? Because I want to give it to a 14-year-old who plays ping pong and has decided to play with me. And there is a bond. You, you simply, what did, what did Paul say? Or not Paul. Yeah, 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 Paul was speaking. It's the only verse, by the way, that we can't corroborate through the Gospels, but I'm positive Jesus said it. Acts 20, 35, when Paul wrote, and Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Those weren't idle words. It really is more blessed. Why? Because you get back a lot of money? No, because you get God. And there's joy in God. And if you've never experienced it, then do something. I don't know. Volunteer. Okay. Last slide. There, was, there have been numerous studies on philanthropy. Um, several years ago, there was a study, a combination study, combined by the Harvard School of Business, the University of California at Berkeley, and a host of other leading universities. Um, and they uh, did some research on the wealthy, on the wealthiest of the wealthy. And, you know, the ones who not only gave their money but gave time, like the guy that I was talking about who was hammering a nail when he could have bought the house. You know, he probably ended up doing both, but, you know, there he is working. And so they did a study, and they discovered that at least five things occur when a person just gives and gives and gives. One of them is, and I have the word happy because that's the word they use, they're simply happier than the guy down the street who works, 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 and puts it all in the bank or spends it on himself. They're happier. They're more joyful. Now, you don't have to make millions to do that. In fact, the beauty of joy is that regardless what you make, and it's not just the rich who give, poor give. Anytime you do something for another person, that's why talks about giving the Macedonian church to the Corinthian church, and he said they gave out of their poverty. Why? Because they were commanded to do so? No, because they wanted to experience God, and it brought enormous joy. They're happier. They're healthier. They actually did some medical work, Low, lower stress, um, lower blood pressure, and so forth. For all those, they, I, I, I didn't preface it, for all those who did five acts of kindness a week, that was, that was the, that's the benchmark. If you did five acts of kindness every week, you were happier, you were healthier, and you were more socially connected. And by the way, what they're talking about is a reciprocal connection. When I made a table tennis uh, racket, a bat, paddle, whatever word you can use. When I, when I made the ping pong paddle and gave it to, and give it to people, it's not just, okay, you know, here it is, whomever, you know, here it is, Nick. It's, it's not just the gift to Nick. We have, a, we have a relationship. That can only come through that exchange. You don't get it any other way. True joy is only by God's design. It only, only occurs in an exchange 
in the giving. They were more grateful. More grateful. I mean, of what they have. Because they happened to nail nails with four people who had nothing. And so the more they come off their thrones and get down to the valleys, they realize, man, look what I have. And look what they don't. And if they have any heart of God, there's this empathy going out. So they were more grateful. And they discovered that it was contagious. By the way, I, don't, I can't prove this, but I wouldn't be at all surprised because these guys knew each other. We were, we were actually in a Bible study, to be honest with you. Um, every Wednesday morning at 7 a.m., I led a, a men's Bible study downtown um, and uh, very wealthy people come to it, men, and that's where these guys, you know, that's where they all knew each other, and so here I'm over here, you know, for this, for a weekend with Habitat, and all of a sudden I see five or six of these guys there. It's contagious, because the word gets back to their, to their other friends. Well, you know, guess where John was? He was working for Casas por Cristo, Habitat for Humanity. Man, he had a ball. And it, it, it's contagious. There is a ripple effect. The same way is true at the pantry and elsewhere. Now, in closing, that's exactly what Jesus did. For the Son of Man, Matthew 20, 28, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. I do not know how long I'll live, but while I live, Lord, let me give some comfort to someone in need by smile or nod, kind word or deed, and let me do whatever I can to ease things for my fellow man. I want naught but to do my part, to lift a tired or weary heart, to change folks' frowns to smiles again, then then I will not have lived in vain, and I'll not care how long I live if I can give and give and give. And that is how you run the race.